I'm Heather Mangilio. And I'm Wyatt Massey. And this is Frederick Uncut. So this week on Uncut, we're going to be talking about New Zealand's mass shooting at Christchurch, which was two Islamic mosques. 50 people were killed, 50 people were injured. A horrific live stream of the actual shooting went up on Facebook and was taken down, but then there was videos on YouTube and other streaming sites uh, rehashing the video. Even though New Zealand is on the other side of the globe, here in Frederick, the mass shooting still had hit at home. One of our reporters, Cameron Dodd, covered a vigil and how the mosque was going to react right after the shooting. And then our own Wyatt Massey covered a vigil on Sunday talking about how this was affecting our community. So Wyatt, tell us a little bit about what you saw and what you heard. Yeah, so the vigil was Sunday night at the Islamic Society of Frederick. Um, and essentially all the people had gathered in the parking lot and sort of on the lawn. And there was a series of folding chairs set up for more elderly people. And then the speakers were talking from the back of a pickup truck. They had a microphone set up there so everyone could see. And there was several hundred people there, um, including faith leaders, uh, various politicians at the local city, at the county, um, and even some representatives from our state representatives in Washington, D.C., as well as just a number of community members who are coming out to show their support, as well as their grief for what had happened in New Zealand. So for a second, talk to me about the religions that were represented there. Was it just people who identify with the Islamic faith? No. So there were different uh, Islamic leaders, of course, from the mosques, as well as faith leaders from the Jewish tradition, from the Christian tradition, um, and as well as community organizers. So some people that are working to, to change our gun laws here in the United States um, and, and different people that are working to, to bring the community in Frederick together. So we're no stranger to mass shootings here in the country. But one thing that does make this stand out is the fact that it was a religious service. Again, that is something that we also have experience with from Pittsburgh. But when you see something like this where it affects a religious community, what is the importance of having other religions and other community members come out and support people? Yeah, that was uh, something that was talked about uh, during the the vigil. Uh, Rabbi Jordan Hirsch came out and spoke, and he uh, talked about how Judaism and Islam has a shared tradition um, with the lineage going back to Abraham, as well as this shared modern experience of of being Jewish or being Muslim in the United States. Um, talks about you're looked at differently, and and every time that you go to to Friday prayers, you're sort of praying that nothing happens this time because that reality and that danger is is always present. So, for the people who are part of the Islamic Society of Frederick, is that something that they are concerned about that they won't be able to pray without? the danger of someone trying to kill them? Yeah, that was something um, that Afsal Latif, uh, who I spoke with, uh, talked about, the the reality that while New Zealand is very far away, that, that danger is always there. Yeah, and that's shocking for everyone. Like, like 50 innocent people who died at, in mosques. You know, and what did you do when you heard the news, or what were you thinking? We just forward to everyone and our prayers for those people and sympathies because it's really hard to if you are going to the prayer you are not safe over there even you are going to church or mosque you are not safe anywhere that's really disturbing and what about some of their leaders have they talked about are they going to be adding additional security measures that would help keep them safe but maybe also make the service a little bit different 
Yeah, earlier in January, uh, our governor in Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan, had included something in his budget um, to the the likes of like $3 million uh, for institutions and houses of worship that wanted to increase their security. They could apply for this grant. And I had worked on that story then. And a couple of faith leaders had mentioned that this is something they would, would look into in terms of increasing their security. And we have seen a number of churches in the area hold these active shooter trainings to to talk about what you do in in the event of an active shooter, as well as what are some of the steps you can you can take ahead of time to to ensure that you are safe. Um, and a lot of times, some of the, the the best practices for stopping an active shooter sort of are antithetical to basic uh, religious principles, whether that's Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, in terms of being welcoming to people who are strangers or who are marginalized. So if you're a church, you can't necessarily lock the front doors all the times because that's keeping people who might be interested in your religion away. Um, so you have to sort of balance between between the two, um, especially with the the shootings that happened in New Zealand. There was It was done during prayer, so people were in the prone position praying at a, at a very vulnerable time. Um, but it also the, the mosque has a store open for a reason, so people who are interested may be coming in off the street and can experience the the power of prayer. So let's talk about Islamophobia, because it's no, we're not a stranger to it in this country, especially with some of the recent policies that have passed. Did people talk about how this shooting makes them worried about increased Islamophobia here in Frederick County? Yeah, so um, all the people from the Islamic Society that I spoke with uh, didn't say that they were necessarily afraid um, living in Frederick. They felt that the, the Frederick community has a good relationship with them, and they have a good relationship with the Frederick community. Uh, but there is always sort of that danger because the, the people that we've seen carry out these acts are not necessarily well-known um, in the Islamic community. They're sort of working on the fringes of this far-right uh, white supremacy um, fringes of the, the Internet. Um, so that is, is something that's always present. And one of the, one of the moments that happened during the vigil, um, Ben McShane, who's a city alderman, who helped organize the the speakers last night, he had a moment where he asked everyone to sort of turn to your neighbor, and if you don't know who that person is, introduce yourself. And if you're sitting or standing next to someone you do know, why don't you look to that person beyond them that you don't know and go up and introduce yourself, because that's sort of how you, you stop these types of things when people feel very ostracized. You get to know your community members, and that's something that becomes increasingly hard in our sort of digital age when it's easy to hide behind a behind a screen or not go out and meet your neighbors or the people who live down the block from you. All right. So one of the other things that made this mass shooting stand out is the prime minister's response. And I believe it was very shortly after that she called for a ban on the certain type of guns that were used in the shooting. Today I'm announcing that New Zealand will ban all military-style semi-automatic weapons. We will also ban all assault rifles. We will ban all high-capacity magazines. We will ban all parts with the ability to convert semi-automatic or any other type of firearm into a military-style semi-automatic weapon. Something that hasn't historically happened after a mass shooting here in the United States. Did anyone comment on how that made them feel? Yeah, one of the members of the mosque, uh, Sabah Haq, she, she talked about how seeing that uh, that action taken to to change the gun laws was very warming and comforting to her after this sort of tragedy that happened because she saw that action could take place from the the prime minister Jacinda Ardern in terms of stepping up and doing something legislatively about this type of violence 
And now we've talked about this happening in the mosque and we mentioned very briefly on Pittsburgh, which I believe you had also covered a vigil for. So is this something that we see often that religious houses are of worship are actually being attacked or targeted by people? Yeah, so I've worked for the Frederick News Post for about seven months. This is the second vigil I've attended in terms of gun violence at a house of worship. And um, I've probably written about some sort of safety-related religion story at least five or six times. Um, it's it's a topic that is increasingly talked about. Um, and we just uh, launched a new podcast here at the Frederick News Post called The Needle. And it's looking at different topics in religion that are often difficult to talk about. And our first episode is actually on guns and firearm ownership within the Christian tradition. But we look at a number of church shootings that have happened in the United States, and they are growing more frequent and more deadly. So as you mentioned, shootings are coming quite frequently in this country. And I believe it's about a year since the Great Mills shooting at a high school in Maryland, so not that far away from Frederick County. So when you were at this vigil, did anyone talk about just how frequent and our responses to mass shootings? Yeah, a lot of the the politicians that spoke talked about how they don't want to be at these types of events um, and how it sort of it, it hurts them to have to go to continually to these events where you talk about the, the community being broken or that this violence being carried out on our neighbors. Uh, but at the same time, that it's important to, to come together. Um, and it seems like some of these vigils are the only time that you have this diverse community coming together, whereas diversity in terms of people of different faiths, in terms of people of different ages coming together. Um, and that's something that Ben McShane had talked about um, with his young daughter who was there. He talked about how holding vigils like this and organizing these types of events are sort of selfish for, for him and his family because he's sort of hoping that these types of conversations, that his daughter won't have to live through some of the realities and some of the fear with these types of shootings um, and, and stopping this type of violence because it is growing more frequent. Hope's not something you usually hear at something that's mourning an event. So even though it was a sad and tragic event that people came together for, was there a sense of optimism among people that maybe we won't have to keep holding these vigils? I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a sense of optimism, but there was a sense of uh, that coming together like that is important um, and it's building something long-term that, that the violence and this type of hate can't break down. Um, and that's one of the things that the, a Methodist pastor, um, Reverend Dr. Eliezer Valentin Cantonone, talked about. Um, he gave a, a speech and he talked about how in religion, um, all these religions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, talks about how love is important and loving your neighbor is important and how that love is actually harder than hate because you have to sort of welcome in the person who doesn't look like you, who doesn't believe the same things you do and treat them as though you were treating yourself. The reality is we all come from the same source. And at least for those of us who have some some faith tradition to, to fall on, we believe indeed that this is something special and that we have something special to offer to each other. It is easy to hate. To love requires work. To love requires an effort that you actually seek to be in connection with that other human being you're looking at. And what about thoughts towards the shooters because something that sometimes comes out after mass shootings is that people do say that they forgive the shooter or that they are not holding anger or hatred towards the shooter did anyone talk about how religion can help a person better understand what happened and also how to feel about the person who commits such a horrible act 
Yeah, so the shooter uh, wasn't mentioned during the the vigil, um, apart from one instance um, where Dr. Syed Haq of the Islamic Society, he talked about how he did not want to say the person was a white supremacist. Because when we are called, or if somebody calls Muslim terrorists, we feel hurt here because we are Muslims. So I don't call them white supremacists. They are just extremist, devilish, and evil extremists. There's no white, black, brown hair at all. And there should not be like that at all. We are all human beings. We're all white. We're all black. We're all brown. We're all yellow. You call it whatever. But the issue here is I really believe that a human being cannot, cannot kill people in cold blood like this. Um, and it sort of gets some people off the hook and puts other people in the spotlight instead of looking at sort of systemically as a community the, the ways that we create these types of shooters and these types of hateful individuals. And that was another thing that the prime minister mentioned is that she did not want to repeat the shooter's names, that she didn't want the shooter to get any fame or becoming famous for this event, which is something that we in the United States and we as media do not always do well. Uh, but did anyone talk about how that also felt to them? None of the people really talked about the shooter. Um, they, they sort of responded to the, the, the violence that had been taken place and, and how that affected them or how they think about their safety. Um, and, and you're right. It's a, a conversation about whether to name shooters um, and whether we're sort of holding them up in terms of the, these fringe communities on the Internet, sort of looking at how this person becomes a hero and then it inspires more and more people like the, the name Dylan Roof is much more well-known than Reverend Pinckney, who he killed, who was leading Charleston AME Church. And so just since we've talked about the number of mass shootings and the fact that this is now a week after the New Zealand one, it, do you think that this is a, something that's going to keep in our minds? Are there people talking about how to keep the victims and the shooting in their minds? Or is this something that we might also forget, just like we've forgotten about other mass shootings in the United States? Yeah, that's it's an ongoing question about whether we just remember the last shooting until the next shooting. Um, and and I'm and with the the needle podcast I talk about with guns, I was actually today just talking with one of my good friends from college about it, and he had listened to it. And at the end of that episode, sort of tease it, but there's a, a supercut of these news clips of all of the uh, recent church shootings. So it's a it's a series of news clips talking about the breaking news with Sutherland Springs, Texas or with what happened in Charleston. And my, my friend made this comment that while he was listening and, and taking in all these news clips, that he had forgotten a good 80 to 90% of those things because things move so fast and that there's always sort of this next shooting to, to keep in our minds that we, we forget about the, the survivors and the victims of previous shootings. No, I think the same thing happened to me. I went to the museum and there was a... a big poster about the number of uh, mass shootings and the last one that they had as the most deadly shooting was the pulse shooting but we had las vegas not that long ago which actually was had more people die in that one so it's just that our numbers keep increasing as well again not that there is any hope or optimism when you have a vigil like this but one thing that you do see a lot of times is that a community does come together to support the people who are hurt most by something as horrific as what just happened in new zealand so tell me a little bit about the people who showed up as the people who needed the support and those who were willing to take time out of their Sunday to give that support to their neighbors. Yeah, in terms of looking at the Frederick community, I think the the group that gathered at the Islamic Society on Sunday was probably one of the most diverse groups I have ever seen at a public event. I mean, you had 
individuals that were elderly and needed to sit down. Um, you had people of different faiths in terms of the, the main religions and different churches in the area, not just the Islamic society and its members that were there. Um, you had political leaders. You had young children that were sort of playing in the playground behind the vigil. Um, and it was really a group of several hundred people from the Frederick community that represented a pretty good cross-section um, of, the, of the community that we have here. And so a couple of weeks leading up to the shooting, just in the United States, there was this kind of sense of pitting Muslims against Jews and just some of the political conversation that was going on. So having a, you know, a rabbi come to um, this vigil or just having other people of religious faith, how does that show a sense of unity among different religions in light of a uh, tragedy? Yeah, that was actually something that Rabbi Jordan Hirsch talked about, that in this moment, the 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 Muslim community needs the Jewish community's support in the same way that several months ago with the Pittsburgh shooting, the Jewish community was really grieving and it was the the Muslim community that sort of stepped up and said, hey, we are here for you. And so to you, I say, we know the experience of being looked at with suspicion. We know the experience of coming to our place of worship and in the back of our mind saying, God willing, inshallah, everything will be okay this Friday. And so just as brothers and sisters embrace each other in the difficult moments, we come here to do that just as you did for us not so long ago. And you mentioned that there were some representatives from the state and the city. Did they ever mention anything about measures that are being taken to make sure that we don't have to have another mass shooting in the next couple weeks? Yes. Actually, there was an organizer there from um, Moms Demand Action, which is a, a group that advocates for gun legislation and uh, gun reform. And they talked about how there are several bills going through our current state legislature to restrict um, some gun rights um, in the area. Um, Maryland has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, but is sort of restricting them further. And the the need to to support and sort of advocate for these bills, if that's how you feel. So there's really no good way to to wrap up this type of conversation, um, but I think a good way to do it and maybe the the best way to honor the the victims of the shooting um, is to, to just sort of listen to the Quranic song and prayer that was used to open the vigil on Sunday. So this is now the part of our podcast where we talk about what's coming up in 72 hours. So Kate. Hello. Hello. <laughs> what should we expect this week? Okay. So I guess I'll, I'll start with the smaller stories and move up from there. So one of my pieces this week is about a new group called the Frederick Creative Coalition. Um, and this is sort of segging from a piece that I did a couple weeks back about a nonprofit arts agency in Frederick called New Spire Arts that unexpectedly shut its doors, um, or not shut its doors, but shut down its education program um, and, and laid off more than half of its staff. 
And so contextually, that was important for the arts community because Frederick has struggled for a long time with a lack of venue and spaces for artists to display their work. And I think that a lot of people were hopeful that the new Spire building would sort of become that space for artists and offer new opportunities. Right now, from what we know, it looks like that isn't happening. And so there's this new group, um, which is the first time I've been in Frederick County for three years. And this this is the first time historically I've heard of this happening, where the creative community has kind of banded together and formed a grassroots movement to try and work out solutions for the artistic community. And it's all sort of related to this idea of promoting an arts economy in Frederick. So if you're an artist, you can live and make a living in the place where you live. Um, and it's important to a lot of creatives, um, especially um, Louise Kennelly, who runs the Frederick Arts Council. And she was talking to me kind of about the point where Frederick has long been promoted as an arts community, right? So that's one of the things that the tourism boards, you know, really emphasize, come to Frederick because we're artistic. But when it comes down to it, there aren't a ton of resources for artists um, or places for artists who are looking to display their work. So it's kind of all about building that within the community. Very cool. All right, and um, how about your uh, taste buds for the week? Okay, so <laughs> so my taste buds for this week, um, I went to a place called um, the Braddock Inn, uh, which is on, in Braddock Heights, sort of as the name suggests. Um, and I started, I, I went to Braddock Inn because I've sort of become fascinated recently with like the historic restaurants of Frederick. So there are all these like old institutions or buildings that have been in existence for a really long time and gone through all these evolutions and had different iterations of restaurants. And the Braddock Inn is one of them where it was, you know, it's been around since 1903 and has gone through like fits and starts. Um, and is now owned by Heather and Carlo Dan, who are doing sort of, I would say it's more of a like gastropub, Cuban-influenced, um, inspired menu. But I went there, and so that was um, interesting. All right. And, of course, the cover story for the week. What can we expect? Um, so my cover story this week is actually about a new or a recently founded nonprofit in Frederick called the Phoenix Foundation. And they're sort of centered on the idea of bringing a recovery high school to Frederick, which before I started the story, I had never heard about a recovery high school or of recovery high schools. I don't know about you two. I haven't. Just the basics. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you can kind of glean what it means from the name, but it's a model that's actually been around since 1979. And interestingly, the very first or the very first recovery school in the country was down in Montgomery County, and it was called the Phoenix School. The Phoenix School had a terrible fire in 2001. Um, The program sort of it was sort of disbanded and ultimately folded into like an overall catch-all alternative high school in Montgomery County. So not just kids with drug and substance abuse problems, which is sort of the, the, the market that recovery high schools are catered towards, um, but kids with all types of behavioral issues. And for people who attended the school, they said that that kind of diluted the message. The purpose of a recovery high school is that you have teens, um, adolescents who are all in the same space and all committed to recovery. So the term that they like to use a lot is positive peer pressure. You know, you get kids who are all committed to, to staying sober. And when that is sort of disbanded and you have kids who are worked in with you know, a lot of peers with other behavioral issues, you don't quite get that recovery focus. So to make a long story short, um, the Phoenix School ultimately folded in 2013, but there's now kind of this new effort um, by some people who attended the school and are familiar with the recovery community in Frederick to start a new one here. 
And how far along in the process are they? So right now, they have raised over $100,000, which is good. And baseline, you need $250,000 to be an accredited private school in Maryland. They're hoping for like a cushion of $500,000 so that they have a seed money starting up. And then they have signed a letter of intent on a property of Frederick County, but they don't want to talk too much about that because nothing is solidified. So right now it does seem like they've made some pretty significant inroads. And is this something that's just aimed for Frederick County students or would you be seeing students from Montgomery County um, or Howard or Carroll as well? It's open to the whole state. Um, Actually, the the closest recovery high school outside Maryland is in Philadelphia but it's not going to be a boarding program that's like a whole nother whole nother issue if you want to establish an actual boarding school so it would be a day program so I'd assume that you'd be getting a lot of local kids very cool so to catch all of these stories make sure you pick up a newspaper this Thursday mm-hmm. for 72 hours or read us online yep thanks guys thank thanks, you Kate. Frederick Uncut is produced by me Heather Mangelio. And me, Wyatt Massey. And edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.